that does is that actually begs the flip question, which is what can I get away with? Because we're evil, deceitful people. If we stop there, we're nothing more than a Pharisee who was trying to obey the law to the best that they could. But we're actually misusing the law because of their character. But we don't want to just focus on the virtue piece because we then begin to carry out evil acts having good intention. But we actually want to be people who are good people who God has made new and right and holy and just. And because of that, we then can carry out obedience to the law because of who God has made us to be. As Christians, what we're looking to do is practice what's called gospel motivated law keeping. Not law motivated law keeping, but gospel motivated law keeping. Now, how do we get there? I'm so glad you asked. How do we get there? Friends, we are about to embark on a journey over the next 40 minutes. God willing, if I can make it through in 40 minutes, that will take us through the entirety of the scriptures. And hopefully when we come out on the other side, you will begin to see that what we're doing here is not just telling us what we can and can't do in our business or in our marriage or in our uh, daily lives. But it's actually providing for us a theology for all of life. A theology for all of life. Don't be scared of theology. It's actually a good thing. You're a theologian here today, whether you know it or not. The question is whether or not you're a good one or a bad one. So hopefully by the time you leave, you're going to leave a good one. So where does this begin? Well, let's begin where God began. In the beginning. It begins in creation. Ethics begins at creation. In the beginning, God. You see, the Bible is more about God than it is about how we got here and what all we're supposed to do. God starts with who? Himself. In the beginning, God. He's telling us something. He's telling us that He Himself is the pinnacle of creation. He is the first. He is the greatest. He is the one who does create. You see, my friends, all of creation flows from Him. He's not taking what has been left over or what is there and shaping it into something. No, He's creating everything out of nothing. He shapes everything. Existence itself, as we know it here on earth, is shaped by God. Think about that for a moment and let that sink in. God is the moral reality in which all things find its meaning. Think about this. Your very existence 
how you are to function, how you are to think, how you are to act, what you were created for. God created all of that. But not just you, everything else. Everything that was needed for this stand, God created it. He even gave the creator of this stand the creativity to be able to create it. He also gave them the idea in order to know that, hey, if I take some metal and some plastic and some rubber and I put it all together and I create this stand thing, that here's what it can be used for. He gave us our rational capacities, the ability to think, the ability to reason, our creative capacities, our abilities to create. Because of the fall, some of us are better than others at creating and at thinking and among other things. But God has still given us this ability he has, in his creation, he's rightly appropriated. That means he has rightly given purpose to all of life. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. This means there's no dimension of life in which God does not care about. This means he cares about business. He cares about economics. To some extent, God cares about college football. And he told me he's a Georgia Bulldog to the core. Just kidding about that. Like your shirt, by the way. Just kidding. God cares about every dimension of life. And I would submit to you, friends, that because God cares about every dimension of life, he's given us an ethic that is not just for the church. But it's an ethic that flows into every part of reality. The ethic that you will hear today and the rest of these two weeks is the ethic which transcends every single vocation. That means what we're talking about today is something that you can take into the business world. It's something that you can take... You can take into the field of medicine. It's something that you can take to the school. It's something you can take into your home. Every dimension of life can be affected by this ethic. Why? Because it, God cares about every dimension of life. Just think about this. Abraham Kuyper says this. He says, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out. This is mine. This belongs to me. Now, what's Kuyper's point? His point is exactly what we've been talking about. God cares for all of creation. And as we practice ethics, guess what? It flows to every part of creation. How you do business is going to be a witness to the gospel. Whether or not you play golf ethically or not is going to be a witness to the gospel. You see, friends, all of life, it flows from God. That means that God has a particular purpose 
for us as humanity, His creation. God creates man in a particular way, with a particular purpose. How does the Bible say God creates man? In His in his image. In his image. Now what does that mean? No, I'm just kidding. Don't tell me that. Now what is he talking about? In his image. In his likeness. See, she couldn't restrain, could you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're going to need counseling. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. That's exactly right. God has created us like Him in some ways. He's created us to be able to reason and to think and to have the ability to act, have the ability to be able to respond. We're dynamic beings. He says that let us make man in our own image. And this is Genesis one twenty six through 28. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Made him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Think about that. God said, Have Dominion. You're created in His likeness. The Creator here is saying, Hey, I've created you like me. I'm Lord over everything. Every dimension of life I've created and put and, and, and created into it a particular order, a particular structure, a particular function. Now I want you to see to it. You exercise a minion, dominion. You exercise authority over it. That it functions and operates how I have set forth. God has not only made you a particular way, but He has also commanded you to exercise His authority. This is why it's okay to kill bugs, right? You're exercising dominion. There's also a second creation story, if you will. You have in Genesis 1 this sort of general narrative of here's how God creates everything. In Genesis 2 it becomes very specific that this is how God creates Adam and Eve who are the first beings, the first humanity that is here. And he says something to Adam and Eve that I find just fascinating. This is in Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. You see, friends, he has given a very specific command. 
a very specific command. God has created man in a particular way, in his image. Male and female, he has created them. He has created some very specific categories there. God's image allows us to be both moral, rational, imaginative, creative, all of these things. As male and female, he's created gender-specific categories for us. He's created diversity in the midst of unity. Then he's also created us with a very particular purpose. To be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth. Now most people kind of want to pass over the be fruitful and multiply. Why would that be there? Well, it's there because of what God commands Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.15. He tells them to tend and keep the garden. The Hebrew words that are there are Abad and Shamar. Don't get caught up on the Hebrew. Basically, the idea of tending and keeping that that we translated them, it's actually something a little bit different. The whole idea of tending, it's it's the idea of tending to your life. It's it's being one who is um, upright and just and taking care of it. They're, They're upright. This is actually the language of worship. They're in right order, right relationship to God. This is actually God commanding Adam and Eve to worship Him. You're called to worship. Further, the language here of Shamar, the idea of keeping, it's the idea of obedience. While we typically think that, no, this is talking about creation care, to take care of the garden. I'll submit to you, there's actually much more going on here. It's the idea of worship and obedience. God is commanding Adam and Eve to worship and obey Him. Worship and obedience is what He set forth for His creation. So why then is the be fruitful and multiply so important? Because God is commanding His creation to be fruitful and multiply, that the earth may be filled with those who are worshipful and obedient followers to Him. You say, well, how do you know that? Because that's why He created Adam and Eve. Not because He needed to, not because He wanted to. He created Adam and Eve in order that he might be glorified, that he might be worshipped. We say, well, that's self-centered. It's God. I hope he's self-centered. It's God, this God that deserves worship and adoration, whom he has commanded Adam and Eve to worship and obey him. The idea here is that these creatures who are worshiping and obeying God, are to rightly reflect the image of God. He has commanded and given very specific laws to a good people. Now remember I said our problem is we're deceitfully wicked. And that we misuse the law. He's actually given them laws because sin has not yet marred them.
So ethics might look something like God as its source. Let's see if we can get the slide up here. It might look something like this. God is his source of all of ethics, of all of creation and everything that exists. And he has commanded to his creation worship and obedience. So what are we created for? What is the purpose for which God has created us for? Worship and obedience. To fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion over all of the earth. And to train up other worshipers in obedience, and to be obedient. Think about that. This is what God has called us to. So all of life then centers around my worship to God and my obedience to God. This is the core of ethics. Worship and obedience. The next slide, what we'll see here. Is that God is actually the center of morality. Morality flows from Him. Think about this. Remember I said that God created, and He created the very structure and the very functionality of everything, including me and including you. He is what we call true north. We want to align our lives with true north. The great hope is that our lives rightly reflect true north. And what does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's capturing this idea of true north. We want to live true north. That means when I get in my car and I drive, I'm going to drive as, as I'm glorifying God behind the wheel. As Larry pointed out to us last week, which was very convicting coming down here, that means I can't speed, right? That causes me as a parent to ask, God, do I parent my kid in relation to true north or am I just trying to get the outcome that I want? Am I living my life reflecting true north? God has called me to that. He's called me to be a worshiper who obeys and who glorifies Him in my obedience. Think about that for a moment. Is that really how we live our lives? This is the reality to which God has called us to. Unfortunately, something happened that was terrible. It was horrific. I would submit to you that it was much, much worse than the most horrific thing you could think of here on earth. It's worse than the Colorado massacre. It's, it's worse than uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's something much, much different than that. We call it the fall. You may say, well, it's just Adam and Eve. They ate some fruit. What was the problem? It was a fundamental disruption. Of the moral harmony that existed. You see, our creation was in such good shape that God dwelt with Adam and Eve. Think about this with me for a minute. The Bible says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Moses asked God, God, please show me your face. 
God said, no, I can't, Moses, because surely you will die. Why? Because the difference was Adam was without sin. Moses, because of Adam, was in sin. I don't know about you, but I desperately desire to walk with God in the cool of the day. But I have yet to be able to do that. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm sinful and I live in a fallen, ugly world. Because the moral harmony has been lost. We now live in an abnormal state. Listen, remember how I said God created you? God created you to be a worshiper, a worshiper who obeys Him. That means you have communion with Him. And when we are in a sinful state, we're actually less human. Think about this. God has created a humanity to be with Him. And when we're not with Him, we're actually functioning less than what God has made us to be. God has created us to be with Him. And because of the fall, we're no longer longer allowed to commune and be with Him. We would take it a step further to say that now where the moral compass was pointing towards true north, where Adam and Eve were able to do what is right, the moral compass is now broke. See, before the fall, we were able to rightly reflect God's glory. We were able to live life glorifying Him. Now our moral compass is broken. It just spins around in a circle. True north. We don't really know what it is. It's an illusion to us. We think we have it all together and we think we're living life in relation to God. We have all these laws now that govern us, but we don't know what the proper end is. And we're still such an evil person that we don't know what is good. In my South Georgia lingo, we don't know which way's up. You remember Larry used the language of spiritual vertigo. Spiritual vertigo, this idea of thinking that a fighter pilot, when he's in a plane, he gets so disillusioned that he can actually, he can't tell which way's, which way's up and which way's down. He can't tell what is actually the ground and what is actually the sky. And, and friends, I would submit to you, the fall caused us to not even realize what was going on within us to know that we're actually flying upside down. We may look at the world like this right here. You can't really tell which way's up and which way's down. We look down and we think we see the horizon. We think we see buildings. But in reality, we're about to crash if something doesn't happen. We're in spiritual vertigo. We need help. We're in a rough state. We no longer rightly reflect God's image. We no longer can achieve true north. We're in bad shape. But God... Ephesians 2 captures this so great. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God being rich in His mercy... Oh... God being rich in His mercy. What did He do? He gave us the law. You may say, wait a minute. God being rich in His mercy gave us the law? How, 
that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. God gives us the law. He gives us Exodus 20. He gives us Deuteronomy 6. He gives us the Ten Commandments. He gives us the Levitical Code. He gives us all of these laws. And it is the beginning of God exercising an act of grace in our lives. He promises us this in Genesis 3 when He says, Look, there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent and it will bruise his heel. That is when the process of redemption comes. And when He gives us the law, He, he begins to show us that it's not just about law keeping, but it's actually about the type of people we are. You see, Adam and Eve were actually good people who could be obedient to good laws. Because of the fall, we're actually evil people who can't be obedient to good laws. This is why we still have folks who murder, who, uh, who kill, and we go, I don't understand. We, we, we have tough laws that prohibit that. Why do people continue to do it? Again, remember what I was talking about, the duty-based or law-based ethics. It doesn't reform bad people. We're bad people. We need reform. So you may say, well, what does the law have to do with that? So what does the law do? What is the function of the law? This is important. Now, when we talk about law, I'm talking about biblical law. I'm not talking about the laws of the great state of South Carolina. I'm not talking about that. Now, they're connected. Believe me, there's some connection there. I'll let Adam next week talk about that. You can ask him those questions. Okay, ask him those questions. So what does the law do? It reveals God's holiness. And in seeing God's holiness, it reveals our sinfulness. It condemns us of our sinfulness. God giving us the law is not Him being evil. It's actually Him being gracious to us. It's it's a gracious act because it's saying, you know what? I'm going to show you how disobedient and how evil you really are. There's 640 some odd laws. That's a lot of laws. It shows us how deceitful our heart is. That's not all it does. It it also restrains evil through God's laws structuring society. Imagine if God's laws didn't provide the foundation for even think about this the 10 commandments the 10 commandments provide the basic structure for how our society functions think about that for a minute and particularly the last 6 we don't want people who cheat steal lie covet we don't we don't want that And typically we want to see folks who are engaging in some type of religious activity. Because we recognize that there's somehow that makes people better. At least that's what we think. You see, God's law provides the foundation upon which all of structure, all of society is structured. And because of that, it restrains evil. Can you imagine if we didn't have laws against murder and we could just all go around and kill one another? 
I would have already killed at least 15 South Carolina fans. I'm just kidding. I really wouldn't do that. Don't, don't, don't think poorly of me. I'm just joking. Thank you, Jesus. We can have fellowship. No, I'm just kidding. Especially after last year's game. But what else does it do? You see, the law also tutors us to, to Christ. It shepherds us towards Christ. It shepherds us. It condemns us. In Galatians, it's called the curse. It's the curse of the law. But it tutors us towards Christ. It, it, it shows us you have got to come to Christ because you are disobedient to this law. It shepherds us in righteousness, too. It shows us our unrighteousness, but it shepherds us in righteousness. This is a good thing that God would give us this law. God would give us this law. See, the law reveals our sinful nature and need for redemption. It is a grace of God. Because God gave us the law, it shows us that we cannot continue to live the way that we are because we are an evil, deceitful people. Your speeding may actually do more to show you about your heart than what you might think it will. Your creative scoring on the golf course may actually show you more about your idolatrous, cheating heart than what you realize. The laws that govern society actually reveal to us our need for the Savior. I'm so glad that God then provided a means for us. He didn't stop there. We're able to continue, and I love this, Romans chapter 6, if you, if you want to look there. We're going to sort of talk through this. Christ redeems us that we can know, so that we're no longer this evil, deceitful people, but that we can now rightly reflect God's glory. We're not like the Pharisees who misuse God's good law. But now this is what we call gospel-motivated law-keeping. Because Christ who came, who went to a cross for us, He now allows us to rightly live, glorifying God, living out true north. Notice what the Scripture said. It says in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, He dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. This is talking about the individual. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lust. 
And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but now under grace. And you know what that point about the law is? You're not under the curse of the law. Jesus went to a cross and his going to a cross and dying on that cross for you. It changed everything about you. If you've trusted him, if you've repented and come to faith, listen, it has changed everything about you. It means now that you can be an ethical person. Remember where we started? We said that there's really two questions. The question is, how can I know how to act appropriately? And how can I become the person who acts appropriate? God gives us his law to describe what is appropriate, but he does so with good people. When sin comes and messes that up, we're now bad people trying to figure out how to obey good laws. And it doesn't work. When Jesus comes... And he says, sin no longer has dominion over you. Friends, listen. I love this. He says, you've been united to him. You're raised to walk in a newness of life. You're not a slave to sin. Your instruments are not given over to sin. That means everything you do is now given over to God. And you now are the type of person. You have the character to obey these good laws. The gospel. Remember I said what we're looking for is gospel motivated law keeping. Gospel motivated law keeping. You see the believer's union with Christ allows him to keep the law. You are able to keep the law where before you were trying but you couldn't do it. Why? Because you were a bad person who was evil and deceitful. But because of Christ we're now able to do it. Only us uniting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are we able to be ethical people. Only then. You see, our symbol of true north may look something like this right up here. We would see God is the source. He's still true north. And the goal is still to glorify Him. And we're still called as God's creation to worship and obey Him. Because of, this, because of the fall, when we were no longer able to do that, we're now able to do that, but it's through the cross of Christ that we're able to do that. It's because Jesus going to a cross allowed us to be obedient to Him. It allows us now to live a holy people who are rightly ordered worshipers of Jesus. Who are called to obey Him. Our identity has now been changed from a sinner to a saint who is united with God and set aside for holiness. Listen, this is going to change your business practices. This is going to change everything that you do. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was easy, but unfortunately we still live in a fallen world. But you see, friends, we're called a redeemed people. As Christians, we live, in a redeemed, we live as redeemed people in a fallen world. And we're trying to navigate these waters. So what is it that we're to do? What is the ethic that we're really getting after? Whether we eat or drink or whatever it is we do, we 
want to glorify God. You are called to glorify God in your business practices. You're called to worship and obey God in everything that you do. It rightly reflects His glory. You may say, but yeah, but that that doesn't tell me whether or not I should do X, Y, and Z. It should inform it. Because you're a believer and because you're a redeemed person, that is going to affect your decision-making process. That is going to affect who you associate with. That's going to affect how you practice business. It's going to affect every dimension of life. The goal is to worship and glorify God. In every dimension. I find it amazing how many people are content with being godly Christians on Sunday, but they never want to let their Christianity inform their vocation. They never want to do that. But it does. It should. It informs all of life. As a redeemed people, we are awaiting the restoration of a falling world. This begs the believer to live as Christ before a broken, fallen world. It is with this tension that we as believers navigate the treacherous waters of the abnormal world in which we live. You see, you may ask me, what is ethical? That which glorifies God is what is ethical. He has told us that our worship and obedience to His law is what glorifies Him. How are we able to rightly obey His law? It's because of Christ. This is the ethic for which we are going for. When we are faced with an ethical dilemma or what we perceive to be an ethical dilemma, what is our first question? Is it for what makes us look good or is it for what we're going to gain the most out of? Or is the first question in the process, what most glorifies God? I have a good friend who is a pastor... In the Raleigh area. And he's from St. Vincent in the Caribbean. He's not Jamaican. I know there's other islands in the Caribbean besides Jamaica. But he's from the island of St. Vincent. He talks really funny, in case you're wondering. But he's just become a pastor, which means his immigration status will change from a student to... Um, to like an R2 visa for whatever that means. But he's been seeing this lawyer about helping him go through this process. And Ray is trying to make sure that he wants his son, who is 18, to hopefully be able to stay here in the States with him and his wife. So they were really pressed to make sure that they got all the paperwork done by October. Ray goes and meets with a lawyer, and this lawyer, who's not a believer, comes up with this convoluted scheme to try to figure out how to make sure that Ray's son fell under Ray's visa status. 
And basically what he was trying to do was something that was probably not illegal, but probably not very wise to do. It was cheating the system, so to speak. It would have been very easy for Ray to go. You know what? I really want my son to be on my visa. I really want that outcome. The ends justify the means. If that's what I want, I'm going to cheat to see it happen. But you know what Ray did? Ray said, you know what? God's in control. I want to do what most glorifies Him. So instead of Ray deciding to cheat the system, he decides that, well, I'm just going to see what happens. So Ray sends off all his work and all of his paperwork and it says that the process is going to take five months. Now this was in July. We're still in June. No, June. I apologize. It was in June. So that means they're going to miss the deadline by a month. So his son's going to have to go back to St. Vincent. Last Saturday, Ray got a call that said, Hey, Mr. Carr, for whatever reason... We don't know why. Your paperwork showed up on our desk and we're going to go ahead and process it and everything's going to be taken care of. Unheard of with the federal government, okay? It doesn't happen. Ray could have done what was at least unethical. Probably not illegal, but at least unethical. But you see, Ray's desire was to glorify God. Whether he ate or drank or whatever it is he was going to do, he was going to glorify God in the midst of it. And friends, when you do that, your outlook on everything else changes. Christian ethics is not about gaining our desired outcomes. It's not about justifying what we do. It's not about gaining the upper hand or being the next big shark in the shark tank. It's about glorifying God in the midst of a lost, fallen, broken world that needs to see Jesus. So where do we start? Does this glorify God? Am I being a worshiper who is faithfully obedient to God's commands. If not, I need to rethink it all.